Hello again. I'm much less wet than I was the last time we met. Um, uh, we're in the second week of our uh, series, Face to Facebook. If you've got your Bibles, I would invite you just to uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, is where we'll spend most of our time, De- Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, this week I've been tasked with the um, assignment to teach on parenting in this digital age, um, which seems impossible. Uh, but I think it goes beyond just parenting. I think that if you have a son uh, or a daughter or a grandchild, or if you have any influence on the next generation of children coming up, this is for you. And I think that pretty much puts everybody in this room as adults. Uh, you have influence on the next generation, and we're going to address that. And so what I would like to do is read um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll read verses 4 through 9, um, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 20, and we'll read 20 through 25. This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord, our God, for our God, for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, now as we enter into a time of studying your word, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move uh, and impress on our hearts what we need to do um, to parent, to uh, be the, the just the people that are raising this next generation uh, in this technological age. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. In August of 1519, a Portuguese explorer by the name of Ferdinand Magellan set out on an expedition from Spain with 270 crew members and uh, aboard five sailing vessels. Uh, the purpose of this expedition was to actually find a, a Western route uh, to, to Asia, a Western trade route to Asia. Um, Magellan, as you probably know from your schooling, is recognized as the uh, first person to lead an expedition that successfully circumnavigated the globe. He went in completely around the earth in his sailing ship. However, it might be to your surprise, what they don't tell you in school is that Magellan actually didn't make it. Two years into this three-year journey, Magellan died. He didn't even make it uh, on his own expedition that, uh, that he's recognized for. 
In fact, if you were to read accounts of this expedition, you'll find that this was not sweet sailing for them. On one account, a year into their journey as they approached South America, uh, some of the crew members in one of the ships was so fed up with the tumultuous conditions that they decided to turn back. They, they, they invested a year of their life into this, and they decided that it wasn't worth it. We're turning back. Shortly, uh, three years shortly after they had departed, September of 1522, uh, Magellan's expedition limped across the finish line with only one sailing boat of the original five and only 18 crew members of the original 270. Because of the dawn of the digital age, it's easy to see that our kids are growing up in a radically different culture with radically different issues, the likes of which parents have never seen before. You guys, as an older generation, are in uncharted waters. And depending on your life stage, how far along you are in raising up this next generation, you might fear the same fate as Magellan. Any of the maybe teenage parents out there are feeling, I'm not going to make it. Ferdinand Magellan, I'm going to be just like him, right? Um, growing up, I was the youngest child. I have two older brothers, six and eight years older than me. And I actually, um, I looked at them as two people that were traveling a path uh, set before them, before me. And because of that, because they traveled this same path before me, I knew the, which opportunities to embrace and I knew which mistakes to avoid. I had the luxury to see what worked and what didn't work for my brothers. Unfortunately, as unfair as it may sound, it's true. You as parents do not have this luxury. You do not have the luxury of learning from a generation of parents before you because their parenting, the generation of parents before you, is in a completely different context, in a completely different culture. You essentially are the first generation of parents that are trying to figure out how in the world do I parent in a world that's so technologically advanced. Just as our children don't have anybody to learn mistakes from, you as parents also do not have anybody that you can learn uh, mistakes from. And so the first thing I want to, uh, that we have to do as parents is we have to understand this digital culture that our children are in. Um, how we interact with the internet, with the web, has drastically changed in the last 30 years, and it has had a profound impact on our kids. Uh, Daryl Gerardier, he is a uh, digital strategy director for Brentwood Baptist Church, uh, which is in Tennessee. He lays out really three major shifts that have, that have happened in the last 30-some uh, years or just less than 30 years on how we interact with the web. And this is actually from an article posted on youthspecialties.com, uh, and you can go see for yourself. It would be very, very helpful. Um, but the first type of Internet that we had, we call, he calls it Web 1.0. Web 1.0, this is how most uh, boomers and Gen X people first encountered the web. It is information-based. This started in about 1990 with the dawn of websites. The, all Web 1.0 is is that we go to the Internet, the web, for information. For example, we're looking up sports scores. We're looking up maybe our email. We're looking up the weather. We're looking up the, the latest news. We're only going to the Internet for information and nothing else, Right? It's primarily information-based. And then in 1999, we see a shift 
to Web 2.0. This is how most millennials first encountered the Web. In first Web, in, in Web 2.0, you actually see the dawn of what we call the blog, the blogosphere. All of a sudden now, we're not going to the web for information. We're going to the web for relationship. You can now contribute to the web. You can post your opinions. You can post your thoughts. You can write a blog. You can comment on somebody's um, article. You can upload a picture to Facebook. You can, you can tweet. Now you're not only getting information, but you're contributing back. The Internet has now become a two-way street, Right? You're creating relationships, and this is when we start to feel uh, ownership of, of the web in our digital space. We feel ownership of our own digital space. Uh, and it's really at Web 2.0 that the Internet, the web, has become uh, daily ingrained into our lives daily, right? And then something happened in 2007 called the iPhone. The iPhone launched us into Web 3.0. Web 3.0 is sometimes called the Internet of Things with the dawn of the iPhone. The hot items right now on the market that you'll see, a lot of um, techie people will say that some of the most advanced technology is what we call wearable technology. For instance, the, the Fitbit. If you have a Fitbit on right now, you're wearing it. It's technology. It is recording your heart rate. It's recording how many steps that you take. It's recording all of this information and then talking back and forth with the Internet. All of a sudden now... The lines between where humans begin and end and where the internet starts begins to blur. With the iPhone, we have things called push notifications, right? They are updating us with all the latest news and all the scores and all the weather. With Web 3.0, now we don't need to go to the internet. The internet comes to us. The internet comes to us. And it, now what we see is that the internet is, is, is no longer uh, just a part of our lives but it's moved to become a support system for our lives. Perhaps you took advantage of the um, opportunity that Pastor Mark presented last week to have a tech fast for 24 hours. Uh, it will not take you long before you realize how much you actually use your phones and how much you actually use your technology. This is Web 3.0. The lines have blurred and the web is always with us now. We can't separate the two. And the reason that I bring this up is because Web 3.0 is the world that our children live in. If you do the math, if this started in 2007, most of our kids have never experienced anything other than Web 3.0. They don't know what it's like to not have the web always with them. And it has had, once again, a dramatic impact. When we understand this concept, we begin to see the, genera gen the generational gap that we experience is now the largest that it has ever been in human history. The older generation and the younger generation live on two different planets. This is what Pastor Mark once again referenced last week when he referred to um, digital natives being our children and digital immigrants those that have had to adopt into the, the world of technology. And once again, it can feel like we are on two different planets because of how we interact with the Internet. I was reassured when I was younger in middle school and high school that when I went home from school, I could keep the school pressure there and I could keep the, the, the pressure, the social pressures there. That's not the case anymore. 
When you go home, if you have social media, if you have any bit of technology, uh, it comes with you. And this is what our children are experiencing. And so as we always should, we have to ask the question, because this has become so much part of our lives, what would God have in store for us? What is our God-honoring response? Walt Mueller is the founder and president of the Center for Parent and Youth Understanding, and he addresses this in his book, 99 Thoughts for Parents on Teenagers. In thought number 30, he explains that there's really only three basic parenting postures that he has seen working with with, uh, youth and parents. And I want to walk through these with you. The first he identifies as the unrealistic optimist. The unrealistic optimist, this parent is the one who assumes that adolescence is a short-lived stage, and so uh, we should take a hands-off approach. Um, we're just going to let them kind of work their own way out. It. They're, they're, they're better left alone, even though this life stage may be filled with ups and downs. We're just going to let them tough it out and, and come out the other side. Why do they think this is the best uh, approach? Because um, they're thinking, well, teenagers will weather it. Uh, they'll weather the storm for a short time, and then they'll come out the other side okay, right? It takes a hands-off approach, letting nature take its, take, take its course. I see two problems with this posture. The first one is that when we assume this posture, this hands-off, this leniency towards our youth, um, we underestimate the power of the Internet in our kids. Really, check out this article from April 13th in USA Today. It starts off by saying that an eight-year-old Ohio boy was a uh, boy with a craving for a cheeseburger drove himself and his four-year-old sister to McDonald's Sunday night after learning how to drive by watching videos on YouTube. During the mile-and-a-half road trip, the eight-year-old obeyed all traffic laws and drove effortlessly through downtown. According to a patrolman, he didn't hit a single thing on the way there. Kid just wanted some Mickey D's. I, I can't fault him for that. I hope he got a Big Mac. Not only do we underestimate the power of children in the Internet with this posture, but you don't have to look far to see that this is actually not biblical. Check out uh, Proverbs 29.15. This is what it says on Proverbs 29.15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. That word reproof, we see it eight times in Proverbs. Uh, so it's a common theme. It actually means to correct. It's this idea that your child is uh, walking towards one course of action. It's the wrong course of action, and you see this, so you do not want them to continue down that course of action because it's wrong, and it's going to lead to hurt, and it's going to lead to pain. And so you literally take them, and you change their course of action and put them on a path that's right. Reproof. Correction. And what they say is that this correction, even though it can be painful at times, actually gives wisdom. It gives wisdom to the child. So next time when they experience this course of action, they'll know, wait a minute, I was going down this path at one point, and then my parents corrected me, and now I should go down this path. What does it do if we don't correct? If we don't have reproof, it actually brings shame. Left to their own devices, our children will falter spiritually. Without some kind of intervention as parents, they will falter spiritually. The unrealistic optimist posture is not biblical. And so Mueller comes to a second uh, post, uh, a second posture. Uh, He calls it the alarmist pessimist. 
You know, a lot of parents, they see the unrealistic optimist and they see that the, the children hurt when, they, when they're left with their own devices. And so they decide, well, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that doesn't happen. And then they go to the other end of the pendulum, which is, which is extreme, right? This is the parent who pretty much demonizes adolescent culture. This is, this is the one that thinks that there's no redeemable value. There's nothing good that can come out of teen years. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to shield my kid from all of the pain that they could experience. I'm going to shield my kid from the effects of sin. But what's happening, Mueller explains, is that when, when we shield our children from all that is bad, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, we in turn sometimes shield them from some things that are good and that they should experience and and learn in their youth. This parent believes that keeping their children from trouble is the best way to prepare their child for life. The problem with this one, and a lot of parents will um, be surprised to hear this, that this too is not biblical. Look at Colossians 3, 20 uh, through 21. This is what it says. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. All the parents are like, amen. Let's just preach on that. Like, children, you obey me, right? But then he doesn't stop there. Paul continues when he writes this. But fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. We see this relationship dynamic going on. And what we see is that, yes, parents have authority, and they have every right to exercise that authority. Uh, they can exercise that authority however they want, as long as it's in a, God, uh, a God-honoring manner. Children, you have to obey your parents. That just is what it is. Uh, whether your parent is more strict or more lenient than the other, you have been commanded by God to obey your parents. But Paul recognizes that there may be some people that abuse that power as an adult. As an adult, he tells them fathers, which actually could mean parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What, is the, what does the word provoke mean? The word provokes means to, to actually to make angry or to embitter. And what Paul is referring to isn't just one instance. It's actually all instances. Don't provoke your children. Don't hound on them so much that it gets them to a place where they will become angry and embittered. And why shouldn't we do this? Because they'll become discouraged. Once again, that's not a powerful enough word. And what Paul means here by discourage is, is not necessarily discouraged, but to lose heart. We could drive them to a point where as a child, they say, I will never live up to what my parents, the standard that my parents have set. I will never reach that. I will never make them happy. And so I'm just going to give up. I'm going to give up walking with God. I'm going to become discouraged. In our strictness, we can make them lose heart, that feeling of wanting to give up. As parents, this is going to be one of the most difficult measures to gauge when I'm being too lenient and when I'm being too strict. Because there's a tension here as parents between erring on the side of sternness or erring on the side of leniency. And John Stott, a theologian, he passed away about five or six years ago. He understood this tension. This is what he says in one of his commentaries. He says that false education is indoctrination in which parents and teachers impose their mind and will on the child. True education, on the other hand, is stimulation in which parents and teachers act as a catalyst and encourage the child to make his own responses. This they cannot do if they leave the child to flounder. 
They have to teach Christian values of truth and goodness, defend them and recommend their acceptance, but at the same time abstain from pressure, still more coercion. What Stott is saying is you have to be careful not to err on the side of leniency, but you also have to be careful not to err on the side of sternness. There's a balance that must be attained among the two. And unfortunately, I can't give you an answer. I can't give you an answer because every child is different. Every parent is different. Every situation is different. Every family is different. In this situation, context is everything. I can give you my opinion, but at the end of the day, they are your children and they are your responsibility. What I can offer you, though, is a third parental posture that Mueller and Stott and myself and even the word of God would recommend you take. And that is the posture of parent of biblical realism. This according to Mueller is a posture that looks realistically at life, looks realistically at parenting, looks realistically at youth and youth culture. uh, And it looks at all of that through the eyes of God's word. It's a posture that's not only balanced, but it, allows us to recognize the good and the bad aspects of everything our children will face in the world. And I would love to, um, you know, I believe this posture of looking at the digital world through the eyes of God is not some man-made philosophy. It's not something that just sounds nice, but this is actually the the very framework that we see laid out in God's word uh, in the passage that we read uh, when we began in Deuteronomy 6. And so what I would like to do is just walk you through this. Uh, walk through what Deuteronomy says about parenting our children. In verses 4 through 5, what we have here is Moses wrote most of Deuteronomy. Um, This is the last book of what we call the Pentateuch. And in Deuteronomy, you'll see the Ten Commandments, which were the building blocks of the law. And Moses goes on to say, this is what you must do as a parent. So in verses 4 through 5, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This served as a pledge of allegiance for the Israelites to God. What what Moses is saying is the greatest command for you guys is to love God with everything that you've got. It's one of the most important verses in all the uh, Pentateuch, right? The Israelites were told uh, in in verse 6 that God's law were to be written on their hearts. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Moses is on to something here. If you are a teacher, you cannot walk into the classroom until you have mastered the material that you are teaching. You cannot teach unless you yourself have a full understanding of the teaching material. And the same is true of God's word. You know what the best thing you can do? to pass on God's word and his view to the next generation, to your children, know it yourself like the back of your hand. You can't teach this stuff unless you know it yourself. And then once it's impressed on your heart, it can be taught diligently to your children. Verses six through seven, we see, or verse seven, we see that this is a family matter. You shall teach them diligently to your children. What does the word diligently mean? Well, he says it right here. You should talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. What he's saying is talk about it all the time. There is no time where it is not appropriate to refer to God's word. 
There is no thing that your child or your grandchild can go through that does not apply to Scripture. There is no time that you can insert, that you can't insert God's Word into the life of yourself and into the life of your children. This is what diligently looked like. If we were to take a page out of the Israelites' book of parenting, 101, we're told them to teach about God's Word wherever we are. And so let me ask you, Where is the priority of God's word in your own family? How much of a priority do you put on God's word? Do you draw your child's attention to God's word on any and all matters of life? When was the last time you did family devotions? Let me encourage you that when you bring your children to church so that they can hear the word teach, that is a good start, but that is not teaching them diligently. You have much more of an influence in your child's life than I do or Pastor Mark or any of the other people that stand up here and preach. You are the primary influence. And to take them here to church once a week is not teaching them diligently. It's teaching them. It's a good start. But what happens the rest of the week? What does your life look like the rest of the week? And so... You can either shoehorn your child to get them to kind of do what you want, or you can teach God's words diligently to your children. You can hide behind because I said so, or you can embrace because God said so. There's no amount of force that you can apply that are going to change your children. However, if what we believe is true, the only thing that can transform your children is the word of God. So teach them diligently. Not only is this a family matter, it's a public matter. Verses 8 through 9, this is what we see. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Basically, Moses is telling his people, hey, follow God just as much publicly as you are privately. You are to follow God just as much outside the home as we do inside the home. When the conditions and the circumstances of the world change around us, and we're seeing this before our very eyes with each technological advance, our devotion to God remains the same. Take heart to know that even though we are traveling uncharted waters, uh, a territory that we have never seen before, we are anchored to a God who never changes, and he's trustworthy. This is a public matter. Now be forewarned, this is all true. However, one day your children um, will stop and ask you a question. Jump over to verse 20. This is what it says. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Moses assumes that as the Israelites move around into the promised land, that there will be uh, competing cultures vying for their children's attention. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He knows that at some point, a child will ask for an explanation for their way of life. They're, they're going to ask, Dad, why do, we, why do we follow these stupid rules? Mom, why, why on earth does this, does this matter? Why do we have to be so different? than everybody else? Why do I have to be different than my friends? Why are we doing this? Let me pause there and remind everyone that if you are a Christ follower, if you have a biblical worldview, you will always be different than the rest of the world. 
you will always be at odds with culture. God tells us this, and he tells us that he has actually set us apart for something different, something greater, and many of our children don't see this as a good thing. They don't see this as a good thing because they want to be like their friends. They want to be like everybody else. They don't want to follow these rules because they don't understand it, and so they're going to ask at some point. And this is what Moses instructs us as to how to respond. This is what he says in verse uh, 21 through 23. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against every uh, Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. It seems like an odd answer to a pretty straightforward question, right? It, it looks like Moses is dodging the question. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't feel comfortable with that answer or that question, so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just going to talk about God, right? No, th- th- he's not dodging the question. What he's actually doing is showing us that the Israelites, their faith, they were not primarily driven by a set of rules, but a knowledge of God. Their faith was not primarily driven by a set of rules, but a knowledge of God and specifically his act of salvation. Son, why do we follow these rules? Because let me tell you, we were in Egypt and we were enslaved and it was miserable, the things that they did to us. So we called out to God for years and years and years. And you know what? God heard us. He heard us and he delivered us out of Egypt. And you wouldn't believe it, son, but I saw it with my own eyes. These miraculous things that happened that God did against the Egyptians. And he brought us out because he's for us. God is for us. And you know, son, he didn't just bring us out of there, deliver us out of there so we could hang out in this desert. No, someday he's going to give us this land, our home that he has promised us for ages. That is why, son, we follow these rules. And then in verse 24, he fleshes it out in more detail. He says we obey God for three reasons. Number one, we obey God so that we will have a reverent fear or an awe of who God is. It's this idea that God deserves our worship, son. That's why we worship, because of what he did. He deserves our worship, because of what he did in Egypt. Number two, we obey God because it's always for our good. Please know that when you obey God, it is for your good because God is for you. When we obey God, it is always for our betterment. Betterment, Son, we obey because we know it's what's best. And you might not like it at times, but when all is said and done, you will see that this is for your good in the end. And then finally... We obey God because it shows evidence of our righteousness. It's proof that the saving knowledge of God has transformed our hearts. It's only in our godliness that we best experience in him. Right? When we teach our children the word of God, there will come a time when they challenge us. How do we respond when they challenge us? Well, it's what we've always done. Or, well, this is your obligation as a Christian to live this way. Or, well, this is what the church teaches. I'm sorry, my hands are tied. We've got to do this. Is that how we respond? One commentator says that such responses, those responses, border on legalism at worst and moralism at best, both missing the gospel. 
No, we take the glorious opportunity to present the gospel because once again, just like the Israelites, our faith is not based on a set of rules. It's based on a person and his saving acts. You see, son, why do we obey? Because I got to tell you, we were, we were separated from God because of our sin. We rebelled against God and we broke this relationship with him, son. And even though that hurt God, You know what the coolest thing is? He forgives us. He forgives us. He forgives us so much so that he actually came down to earth as Jesus and he lived a life that we couldn't live and he died a punishment that we deserve. And because of that, everybody who follows him has this restored relationship with God. They have this restored relationship with God and God has saved us. I had a one-way ticket to hell and God saved me from that. He snatched me from that. He rescued me from that. And you know what the best part is, son? He didn't save us just to kind of leave us stranded in this in-between area on earth. No, someday he's going to deliver us to a place that is beautiful where we can live with God for all eternity. That is why we obey, son. And so we don't follow God's rules because we have to. We follow them because we want to. Because he deserves our worship. Because it's always for our good. And it's for our righteousness. When we apply the same parenting posture that was written about thousands of years ago by Moses to our modern day culture of advanced technology, I think the application is clear. I understand as a parent, you want to keep your kids safe. I understand you don't want to see them hurt and that we want to protect them. But as Christian parents, our goal is much bigger than because I don't want to see them get hurt. I would like to think that we have the decency to think that about anybody. We don't want to see anybody to get hurt. No, our goal is not to try and keep our kids safe. Our goal is to teach our children to be godly, to be godly. And I am convinced the only way to do this is to continually instill in them a biblical worldview by diligently teaching them God's word and pointing them to Jesus's saving acts. We need to think bigger picture here. It's more important than just your children this is going to be passed down to your children's children and their children and beyond. No, this is, this is generational. We're called to help our children navigate this maze of life, not just for them, but for our entire family line. And there's no better person to do that than you. It's absolutely generational. Your family line depends on your ability to point your children to Jesus. And it starts with you. I'll end with this story. When I was a, a younger, I had a seventh grade math teacher named Mr. Bobonix. And he always encouraged me to um, <clears throat> write out my work, you know, show my work on my test. And so on one test, I get the test back and I had the right answer, but I had points marked off on it. So I go up to Mr. Bobonix and I tell him, Mr. Bobonix, what gives? Why did you take points off of my test? And he said, well, you got the right answer, but you didn't show your work. So I challenged him. I said, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? And this is what he said to me. He said, Mike, it is my job as a teacher not to give you the right answer, but instruct you how to arrive at the right answer. 
I've marked off points because I don't know if you know how to get the right answer. Our job as parents is not to give our children the right answers in life, but to instruct them how to live, how to arrive at the right answer. An answer that points to God, his word, and Jesus Christ as their savior. And this cannot be attained unless it's impressed on your heart. Let's pray.